What bugs me about the term data-driven is the driven. The implication that you're not making the choice, the data is making choices for you. Now, one way I have done this in marketing is to think of what we do in marketing as a minor league, major league kind of an environment. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast once more. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm great, Shaheen. All right. We were talking about a bunch of really interesting topics, to us anyway, and hopefully to the listeners. Let's start with the first one, and that's none other than the celebrity of our time, Elon Musk. Elon Musk is always good for some discussion, but uh, you know, the today and yesterday, what's been going crazy is this whole cache of text messages and Twitter messages that went around between Elon and his connections people like Andreessen, there are various people of power around the tech business. And it's actually been kind of funny to watch the commentary because everybody's got something to say because it's Elon Musk, you know, Mr. Lightning Rod, and he draws all the attention. But I think we ought to talk about him a bit because I think there's a couple of good things to learn. But first, tell us what was your thought about the messages? Yeah, so the Atlantic article is what instigated my reading it. And these text messages were presumably meant to be private. I don't know how they came to be. I think it was part of a discovery in the court case. But you get a glimpse of his commentary, not in his capacity as a celebrity who is actively working to retain that celebrity status, but private conversations with other peers, so to say, because they're all, as you mentioned, people of note in the tech industry. So that part was interesting because now you get a glimpse into how private conversations happen among these guys. Well, I think too, you know, the, the thought that occurs to me there is that you know, by seeing those, we begin to see what they used to call how the sausage is made. That was always used with politics, which is you really didn't necessarily want to know how the deal got done in the back room. You just want to know, here's the law that got to there. Because the reality of how things happen in the world is not like TV. You know, it just isn't the latest hot show on Netflix or Amazon Prime or wherever. You know, we're all human beings. So I think partly it reveals that despite his celebrity, Elon Musk is still just a guy. And uh, his conversations with his friends are actually kind of dull. And, uh, you know, maybe I mean, interesting to him, but as an outsider, yeah, it is as an outsider, when you go listen to somebody else's conversation, think, Wow, right. there's excitement in that because, you know, like two other people, they share a whole bunch of stuff and they can have a really mundane sounding you know, discussion that to them is really valuable. And the rest of us are like, oh, yeah, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, definitely there's an intrigue and in eavesdropping on some yeah. powerful people's conversations and say, ah, that's the kind of stuff that they talk about. But mm -hmm. what we never know when you eavesdrop is you never know the intent of the person. You never know whether they're saying this because they have something else in mind. They may say this without believing it because that's the game they want to play. We don't really get those pieces of data. So it is we have to rec recognize that. Uh, but you nevertheless 
do get the feeling that you're in on something that you normally aren't in on, and that's intriguing and interesting. It, it is. Uh, then I thought the Atlantic article, one of the interesting things in it was it talked about how despite these people being powerful people, when it comes to their dealing with Elon Musk, they were all a little sycophantic. You know, they're all making up to him because he's the big guy. You know, he's the guy that's the richest man in the world or, you know, um, whatever. Well, uh, it, you know, it was not a complimentary article, no, uh, not about him nor uh, some of the other folks who were there. And and again, I don't know whether they said whatever they said for effect or they really meant it. Mm-hmm. But the context of it, of course, was this big, you know, 40 plus billion dollar deal that he's trying to spearhead. And if you want in on that, then you want in on that. He's the guy who's got the ball right now. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to see these guys' capacity to recognize that and mm-hmm. say that he's got the ball. So in this particular case, he's the boss and we better... If I want in on this, I need to support him, and I need to come across like that. I, that that was my read. Well, I, I thought I had a couple other thoughts that came out of it, and one was we'll start with uh, not the one we I, we talked about as much in the uh, uh, pre-show, but um, you know what occurs to me. One of the things that occurred to me in reading these comments is maybe Twitter's already awfully damn good, and that it's not a simple thing to wave a magic wand and all of a sudden have everybody be entirely happy with with how it works. And I've said from the beginning on this deal with Elon Musk that he's not prepared for that. Um, I don't think that interpersonal communication is, is his primary strength. I think that he is brilliant in so many ways, but I don't think that this is where his strengths are going to play well for him. And maybe Twitter already works pretty well, you know. Dollar Shave told us that they could reinvent the razor industry, and it turned out they got bought by a razor company, by a Unilever to be their razor company, and Unilever can't figure out how to make money with them um, because they were basically giving away razors, and that's how they got big was by giving away giving away um, their goods. Um, the razor market, it turns out, was already pretty economically efficient. Room for change always, but pretty economically efficient. May yeah, I, yeah. I think that we, we may discover that Twitter is already in that spot. Well, I think in general, it is easy to judge things from far away mm-hmm. and, and say, and you know, this is kind of a segue into my complaint about the marketing profession, that mm-hmm. a lot of the commentary I see in social media is all about why other people are doing it wrong and how dumb can you get. And, you know, so it's easy to judge things from far away. And you see some of that in these text messages. But then as you get closer to it, you realize that A, people thought about a lot of those things already. It's Mm -hmm. not a new idea. Mm -hmm. They probably tried to implement the good ones and they hit obstacles that you can't think of. And if you actually look at some of the other comments that these guys make about other things, oftentimes they do get to that point. It's like, let's do it. Let's not do it. Oh, it cannot work. You know? Mm-hmm. So they go through the same process. It's just that because of their celebrity status, they get echoed in a way that, you know, amplifies their, their voice, including their wrong voice. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, I once read a book by Peggy Noonan, who was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. And, yeah. uh, Politically, that's not where I hang out. But on the other hand, um, the book was really interesting. And I thought the most fascinating part was she talked about arriving in the White House after Reagan was first elected and how they all walked around, all the staff walked around looking at the ceilings and walls and going, wow, we're in the White House. 
And then they entered a second phase, which is, ha, we're the leaders of the free world and, you know, feeling confident and strong. And, and, and then the, you know, reality begins to hit. And the third phase for her was to be look, begin looking around going, oh, no, these are the people who are the leaders of the free world. Um, because everybody's strengths and weaknesses start to show and you see somebody who doesn't think too clearly, but maybe gets some success over there and the like. Um, and what she never reported in the book, and I don't know if she ever got there or not, that a friend of mine observed is the fourth phase is simply going, you know what? The leaders of the free world are just human beings. And I feel a little bit like that's what this shows. It's okay. So here's Elon Musk, the celebrity. You know what? Underneath it all, he's just a human being and he has as many bad ideas as good ideas. But, you know, there's a presumption that by the time you get to that state, you have yeah. passed through many filters. Right. I remember in the old days, mm -hmm. if you were at a company like IBM that yeah. had, or, you know, that had a management discipline, mm -hmm. by the time you were like a second line or a third line manager, you were pretty good. You wouldn't make it up there if you were not pretty good. Yeah. So you have this expectation. You expect that if you make it to something like a world leader status or a, you know, or if you make it to a big corporation boss status that you will have passed through a lot of these filters. So I think it is reasonable to expect that you're not just another guy, that you mm -hmm. have some exceptional qualities. And if those exceptional qualities are coming in, then really my commentary is that if you lucked into it, yeah, maybe you're just another guy. Yeah. Well, I think there's that. Or if you're outside of your area of expertise, you're just another guy. You know, and I think that may be some of what we're seeing here, which is here are all these guys who really, you know, so many of them are financiers. And they didn't make it because they really know how to run these companies. They made it because they supply money. And so right. they throw ideas around, um, but then they're all, you know, it's, it's Elon Musk who would have to at least figure out how to hire people who would have the ideas to run the company. So most of them are just throwing shit against the wall and <laughs> while being Elon Musk. Um, and I think you're right. It's the other thing is that what we're seeing here is this is business at work. This is not really friends. You know, this mm -hmm. is business at work. I mm -hmm. mean, what do we want, though, from a leader? And this goes everywhere across, whether it's in marketing right. or a CEO or a president. Well, we want a leader who eventually arrives at the right choice. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that I do have some problems with uh, some of the laws that make every action of government available for public critique. Because my experience of doing great things is you got to sit around at some meetings and say some really dumb shit before... You for get sure, the idea sure. that you eventually, because it's your choice in the end that matters, not what you said along the way to get there. You know, yeah, that's right. You that's find right. the right answer in the end. Yeah. So let's go to another controversy. And the next one has to do with how brands grow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So here's what here it was. Twitter blew up this week with some criticism of Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and what Byron Sharp has said in his book, How Brands Grow. Um, and it all came, it primarily circled around an eternal discussion about differentiation. And Byron Sharp set the world afire a few years back by saying that he thought distinctive assets were more important than differentiation. 
And uh, of course, for all of us who grew up on differentiation, that's such a, a radical thought. It's like, no, 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 no. You know, I, I believe me, I had to do my own processing of it to kind of try to understand what he was saying and the like. Um, and I don't entirely agree with him, but I think he's got a lot there. But as things go, his term is distinctive assets. Well, the assets get lost. And so the discussions around distinctiveness versus differentiation that hit the internet this week, and ah, right. oh, it went on and on and on and on and on and on. So uh, that's the background. And you arrived on the scene. Yes. So my joke, of course, was that the word distinctive is insufficiently distinctive and <laughs> insufficiently differentiated. <laughs> Which is a fair point, ironically. <laughs> But kind of, you know, getting past that being flippant, my interpretation, just so that it would make sense to me, was that it had to do with the kind of differentiation. I, you know, I read the commentary as when you focus on your product differentiation, they better be indisputable. They better be black and white differentiation. I have it. You don't. Game over. The problem is that that is not sustainable. You say that and it lasts for two days before mm -hmm. others claim to have it too, whether or not they have it. Mm -hmm. yep. So I always thought that distinctiveness was that kind of indisputable differentiation, that it mm -hmm. was the same spectrum. And if you wanted to stay in the indisputable corner, distinctiveness was a way of establishing that, mm -hmm. that you could control and it wasn't something that others could copy and claim easily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I fought this frustration with my agency because we were of the entire direct response television business. I think the one agency that was really solidly anchored in strategy uh, and strategic work in reality, but there's no way to sell that because the minute you come out and say, well, we're the strategic, you know, we have a strategy advantage. Everybody else you start reading other people's websites and you'd think that they were the gods of strategy, even though I knew the companies really well. And I knew that they were absolute bumbling, um, you know, klutzes with strategy. But you can't tell that to a client, you know. Uh, well, they're all wrong and we're perfect. No, that doesn't work. You know, clients are smart enough to not buy that. So uh, I know that fight. I think some of the challenge here is back to this. I noted that Byron Sharp's comment is that distinctive assets are tremendously critical. And what he means there are those things that unequivocally recall yeah. and bring people to your brand. But in other words, the Doritos package is a distinctive asset. And when you change your distinctive assets, you get into trouble because people can no longer you know, recognize your brand on the shelf. Um, and things like that. And I think that if we keep it as distinctive assets, um, the discussion all of a sudden kind of settles out a little bit. But, but it's hard to avoid that yeah. the only way you make an asset distinctive is by focusing on distinctiveness. And, yes. you know, so it, it gets into, into, the, into the mix. But uh, wouldn't it, you say, though, that, the, you know, if we, if we just start with like the visual representations or sound representations, representations yes. of your brand and your product, those right. do need to be distinctive or else you get lost in the clutter. Right. Um, right. But you know, how much does your product have to be distinctive or just well differentiated? And that, I think, is where, we're, for me, that discussion is kind of the two levels of it. Yeah. You know, another maybe not great analogy is in the parlance of software is user interface mm -hmm. versus the guts of a software package. Yeah. 
the user interface is what can be distinctive, what you can get used to. And if they change it, you may not like the software anymore, even though it's really the same software. Yes. So the Doritos package really is the user interface of actual chips to mm-hmm. you as the consumer. Mm-hmm. So that is an important way of presenting it. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's another way of looking at it. Actually, I, th- I, don't, I think that's a pretty good one because I think you know, that, that is the truth that when you look at the distinctive assets, their way of presenting and getting people to engage with the product or with you. If we switch it around to the B2B world that we've both been in, what's a distinctive asset in the, in the B2B world? Some of it is your foundation story, although we found that foundation stories are about a quarter of an inch deep, so you get through it really quick. And then people say, that's nice, but why should I care today? You do need clear names and logos and things like that. You know, I think uh, we fought that back in the day when Floating Point Systems decided to change its name to FPS Computing mm-hmm. in order to reflect its change from Floating Point Systems, which were the Floating Point Attached Processors, into uh, making big computers. And what I found is that was a very, very hard change. And people were, you know, floating point systems was a distinctive and clear name, despite its liabilities. FPS computing sounded like went right past me. Yeah, it sure is. And it's, it just shows how difficult it is to do it. And then who are you doing it for? And whether you know, customers to me, this whole thing is the spectrum of differentiation. You're Mm -hmm. talking about a difference between you Mm -hmm. and others. And that difference doesn't necessarily have to be a product difference. Yeah, We've talked about that in the past. It could be yeah. a difference in any aspect mm-hmm. of your interaction with customers. Mm-hmm. It really is all about the difference in customer experience in its totality. So it's the user interface, it's the actual product, it's the feature function, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's true because, I mean, differentiation, if you, if you focus on and hire a certain kind of sales force, that can be a significant differentiation for your product and company. Because the experience that people get with your sales force, if you're able to do that successfully, will set you apart. Yeah. yeah. So if you ask a consumer, why did you buy this? And you say, well, I like the package. Yeah. Okay. That's a difference, mm-hmm. right? And they're not going to say that's because it's distinctive, even though it is not differentiated. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, then we get into these issues of like, I don't want to ask my consumer about what, you know, distinctive, because the distinctive assets, you know, it really does come from a solid retail background where, you know, if you get, if you're walking down the, the aisle, you need to stand out on the shelf somehow. Right. Um, and that's a different situation than if you're a business to business, you know, selling of some 10 or $20,000 item. Well, we need data to uh, oh, yeah. uh, analyze this further. And that's, uh, well, leads I us think to- we should try decision with data don't you think <laughs> i think so so let's talk about that <laughs> oh i love this one this discussion came back up so kinska bureau put out a a, a a tweet which i thought was a really good question she says can someone tell me what does non-data driven decision making look like you know essentially with the implication of look if you're not using some data somewhere what the hell are you doing um and uh, there were a number of uh, number of responses that came back to it. But the thing that I thought was worth talking about is what bugs me about the term data-driven is the driven. The implication yes. that you're not making the choice, the data is making choices for you. And I have seen bureaucracies where 
that idea is used to excuse all kinds of uh, mistakes. You know, I mean, you, you see people that say, well, but the data said to do it. And, you know, that's not a legitimate management excuse. So as I read it, I'm like, yeah, the problem is, you know, we need, every decision needs to be data informed, informed by whatever data we can get our hands on and use appropriately and process appropriately and understand. Um, but I'd rather not be driving decisions with data. I'd rather be making my choices informed by data. Yeah, no, I, I, I caught up after you explained it and I, 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 I agree. The word driven is too strong. Uh, and in fact, really, when and you can tell that when you replace data with something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, with all the stuff about emotional intelligence, maybe we should be have emotion-driven decisions. Exactly. So if you just replace the word data with other sort of driven, you will right. soon find that no matter what you use, somebody's going to be like unhappy about it for good reason. Mm -hmm. So, so my initial reaction was that this has a lot to do with where you're coming from. If you are coming from an environment where everybody just goes with gut feel and data mm -hmm. is abundantly available and routinely ignored and it's causing bad decisions, then it's I can see how you might say that, hey, guys, we really need to be more data-driven. Let's like look at the data we've got. Mm -hmm. uh, but then if you're coming from a background where you already are doing all of that that is necessary to incorporate data, then you recognize that data is a component of what goes into a decision, not mm -hmm. the whole thing. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, for me, decision-making comes down to this whole range of instinct and past experience and, you know, data that's obtainable on the market and research that you go and work. It, it is interesting that, you know, around market research, at one point I read an article uh, that I haven't been able to get my hands on again. I don't know where it was, but I read an article that talked about how the value of market research depends on the companies, executives, and management staff and whether they know how to use it. And maybe that's the same as true with data, you know, that it all depends on whether you know how to use it, not whether it exists. And, you know, some people just don't know how to read data effectively in order to have it affect their decisions. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, one of my recent uh, banners is data is hard, even for you. <laughs> data is hard. And and just because, you know, it, it, it's just hard for everybody. So one thing is that everything is data. That's kind of one, one piece. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, second, commodity data, just a massive volume of nondescript data, doesn't have a lot of value. Mm -hmm. Data needs to get transformed, manipulated. There's a data supply chain as mm -hmm. commodity data translates into eventually valuable data. But it's data every step of the way. It's just that right. it's a different kind of data. Well, and actually with that, can I ask, isn't there also, this is where one of the risks comes up with data, which is as data gets transformed, it's a brilliant thing to do. But as the people who do that transformation lose the, leave the scene, you lose an understanding of what the transformation might have kept or lost. And so there's also a danger in transformation that somebody has to keep track of, oh, there was a transformation and here's what it meant. And therefore, this data can be used within these bounds, but don't try to use it for that decision. Absolutely. I think the context of data and the definition of the data are also very, very difficult. Mm 
Uh Within marketing, we can already talk about lead. I got five leads. Okay, what do they mean? Right. And what is a sales qualified lead? What is a marketing qualified lead? So before you know it, you've got a half a dozen different definition of lead. So it is very Mm -hmm. simple to just lump them all together and say lead. So how much granularity Mm -hmm. are you going to use to define these pieces of data in a way that is tractable? But that makes any conversation difficult if you don't already agree on what it is you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I think I can make this make sense. Um, I once worked on a, a thing around a campaign for Apple TV or for Apple, not Apple TV, but a TV campaign for Apple. And we had done a half hour infomercial and a bunch of people had called. So this research firm went out and called those people back to ask some questions about interest and the like. And they reported back to us and they said, wow, this is incredible. They were so much more interested than we find on average. And I said, well, what do you have on average? Well, it turns out their average was people they had paid to come in and look at sitcoms in their facility. I'm like, okay, now, wait a minute. You are trying to compare people who were interested enough by a TV ad to place a phone call and leave their name and number and their address against random people that you forced to watch a sitcom and you're surprised (laughs) that the people who showed all this motivation are more motivated than the people. You know, it was a complete nonsense market research and sad because they were a major market research firm nationally. Um, yes. And eventually, one of their guys that I, I worked with sat was the uh, uh, president of the uh, Market Research Association or the you know the national uh, uh, group. Yeah. You know yeah. what the heck? I, I feel like we need a permanent section on this podcast on data because, <laughs> as I keep saying, it doesn't go away. And with yeah. digital getting bigger and bigger, data is just going to be a really big piece of this. Hey, could, uh, so do you want to shift to a worst practice then? No, in a best. Uh-huh. Actually, this is a best or worst practice question. Best and worst practice. All right. So an article is out today, and Rory Sutherland passed it along, and I went, oh, I have to look at this. And it it suggested a really fascinating idea. And you know how in marketing, we follow what other people do in their marketing. And within an industry, it kind of becomes accepted practice that, well, if you're going to be in this industry, you use uh, Google AdWords and you use, you know, paid banners and you use, right, so forth and so on. And the article suggests that everybody should put aside 10% of their budget to spend on doing Mm -hmm. things that nobody else in the industry does. And I thought it's a fascinating idea. I don't know if 10% right or wrong or indifferent, but the idea we get so caught up in the idea that best practices will tell us all the answers. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a nice way to say, no, you really need to be changing things up. Mm. So I have to tell a story that I have very often, and I never remember anymore whether I've said it even on this podcast before or not. But many years ago, when I was with the system company at Sun Micro, we were meeting with a uh, with, a, with a Dutch bank, and I don't know which one it was, but the but the CIO was saying that I've got two parts to the bank, the part that runs the bank and the part that changes the bank. And I think that's what it reminds me of. Now, mm-hmm. within our own marketing group, and you would remember it from old times, yeah. we had traditional sort of marketing activity that we did. Uh, the best part of it actually was in uh, performance management and benchmarking. Yep. Mm-hmm. You had industry standard benchmarking, mm-hmm. and then you had customer benchmarking. 
Mm-hmm. And customer benchmarking was interrupt driven. They would come and go and things would change because the situation would change. Right. Whereas industry standard benchmarking was like on a march, steady, etc. And after a while, we separated the teams that worked on those. Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't, customer benchmarking would just occupy the whole thing. Mm-hmm. That we needed to protect the part that was just trying to accomplish those other things. Mm-hmm. And then in many IT environments where my background is, there is a production environment that you don't touch. That's like the plane that is in flight and you don't mess with it. And then you need a lab environment where you can kick the tires and check out new technologies Mm -hmm. such that you know what is eligible to get into the production environment. Mm -hmm. So all of those kind of point to the same thing is that you've got to have the capability to do new things and evolve. I think it is particularly difficult in in any environment that has some degree of bureaucracy in it, because at some point a bureaucracy becomes all about protecting its own job. And I don't mean that badly. I don't mean it like these people set out to say, oh my God, but that's just, it's what happens among large groups of people that are all given rules about how to work and the like. And the truth is, if you're going to have a big operation, you've got to have people doing that. You know, you kind of have to have people doing that bureaucratic stuff. And, yeah. you know, you have to have rules, you have to have methods, you have to have processes. But at the same time, the truth about organisms, and, you know, this is all the stuff that comes out of complexity, is that, um, for example, if an ecosystem isn't challenged, it no longer has the health to survive for a long time. So that the more we try to control ecosystems as mankind, Mm-hmm. the weaker we make those ecosystems. Um, you know, they just right. have some natural challenges coming in. And so I love what you're talking about because I think that's this thing about you've got to be pushing the edge somewhere. You've got to be trying new things. You've got to have some people who are given the ability to say, don't care about what the best practices are. Just go do something. And it's interesting to me because, you know, I work around a lot of people I consider quite innovative in both in business and in art and all these places. And what I find is the really brilliant people, um, they don't think about practices at all. They're focused on trying to find solutions. And it's kind of like what I've always felt is you need them turned loose to go find solutions. And once they find the solution, then you back up to figure out how to deal with it. Right, right. But if you don't let them go to find solutions, mm-hmm. you'll never get to the mm-hmm. solutions. Now, one way I have done this in marketing is to think of what we do in marketing as a minor league, major league kind of an environment mm-hmm. where you introduce a campaign or an idea or a new marketing mix vehicle as an experiment mm-hmm. in a limited way. That's like a test market that consumer guys do. And, you know, usually it's somewhere in Illinois, right? Uh, isn't it like Peoria, Illinois is where all the test marketing yeah. happened in the yeah, old days? Yeah, it was for a while, a long time. Peoria was the standard, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you, you kind of test drive it. And if it shows promise, you expand it. And mm-hmm. likewise, if you have a major campaign that is global and it's starting to lose steam, instead of just wiping it out, you can reduce its scope gradually and let it all evolve like an organism. So the minor league, major league has really worked for me in mm-hmm. allowing new stuff to happen and evolve it in a proper way. I think the only difficulty I've found, and I don't have a management solution to it at this point, is I've seen those situations where 
you know, some of the people in the major league get so dismissive of what the minor leagues are exploring that they'll never, you know, they, it's like an argument that turns out between them, right? right? And sometimes there's a jealousy of the minor league people because they have freedom to play and innovate and do clever things. You know, sometimes there's a, you know, it's basically it's some kind of a competition. Yeah. And when it becomes a competition, that's that's bad. I think that, you know, somehow, you know, if it's got a rationale to it that everybody understands and accepts, it can be absolutely brilliant. And that's yeah. one of the challenges that we have with it is to try to figure out how to manage it so that it doesn't become, you know. Well, you know, a big part of this, and this we may have to leave until a later episode, is the scale of things. This kind of stuff is easier in a big company where you've got a lot of voices and you can see mm-hmm. whether campaign works in this part of the world, but not that part of the world. And you've got enough people in the field to opine and help you steer it. If it's a smaller company, it's harder. And of course, even marketing as a whole has mm-hmm. a different meaning as a small company as, mm-hmm. than it does in a big company. I, absolutely. I think so. So we'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. <laughs> all right. So let's wrap up this episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Shane. Thank you to all of our listeners. Absolutely. Until next time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.